The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 17th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Chevy Baylor Hunter Whiskey. Great names for quadruplets. I'll go on. Grandpa G's Butt Radio. That's B-U-T-T. I just told you a couple of sets of words that are A, terrible CB radio talk, B, Peyton Manning checking out of a run at the line of scrimmage and into a pass, depending on defensive coverage, or see a set of words used on Twitter much more often by Trump supporters than Clinton supporters. Yes, the website Quartz has published this great analysis where they took Twitter words and they assigned neutrality or tending towards Clinton supporters or tending towards Trump supporters. I'll give you a bunch of Trump trending words. Screw truck, hunting roads, love, thankful, dang, America whore. (laughs) And here are some words more associated with uh, Trump opposition. In other words, Clinton-esque people. Barbershop and bistro. Transit bitches, yeezes bitch. Emails, quando. What's quando? Congress and shittiest. The greatest thing about this is the two ends of the spectrum. The Trumpiest word out there is crap. And the most Clinton or anti-Trump word out there was fuck. It was the crap fuck spectrum. And I think if you look at the electoral choices, most Americans would agree. This just in, quando is Spanish for when. On the show today, I spiel about Democrat words and tactics and how a change in words will be an insufficient tactic. And in a minute, we will take a breath from the worldly tumult and escape into the world of art, David Bowie's art in particular. But first, here's Slate's Fred Kaplan on Trump family members and classified info. You get a security clearance. You get a security clearance. You get a security clearance. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I can't follow all the machinations out of the transition team if it is indeed a transition team. Part of me thinks that it's palace intrigue. We'll wait till the reality presents itself. Part of me is interested in the intrigue. I'm wondering if the Trump team is doing this strategy of floating very radical names so that when they embrace the radical but not as radical actual appointee, it seems more palatable. But let's not even talk about that for a second. Let's talk about security clearances. Because word was sources close to Trump, 
there is an asterisk, said that Trump wanted security clearances for his three adult children and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Trump rebutted the part of that about his children, but it does seem clear that he wants Jared Kushner to get a top security clearance. Joining me now is Fred Kaplan. He writes the War Stories column for Slate. Hello, Fred. Hi. So, Let's talk about, uh, is it possible if Trump wants to give his son-in-law a security clearance? Is there anything in the law saying he can't do that? Well, here's the thing. Everything about classification stems from executive orders. Executive orders are signed by the president. There's a lot of latitude in there. If someone deep in the bowels of the bureaucracy decides that some document should be stamped top secret. He is doing that as part of the machinery of presidential authority. Therefore, if the president himself decides, I want to give my son-in-law access to the daily president's briefing, he can do that. Now, and this is where things get kind of interesting. I mean, well, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second. Can he do that without any security clearance? Can he just talk to um, him over, over breakfast about it? That's where it gets kind of interesting. And under under statute, actually, and under executive order, the following people do not come under any kind of review to get a, a, a security clearance. The president, the vice president, because they're elected by the people and, and all authority, you know, stems from them. Members of Congress, you know, the heads of the intelligence committees, they've never had a security clearance review. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices, uh, but that's it. Now, there are regulations about security clearances to employees, but let's say Jared Kushner doesn't take a salary. He said that anything he does, he doesn't need a salary. And, you know, on the one hand, it looks like, well, that's a nice economizing move. I mean, the guy's worth billions of dollars. He doesn't need, you know, $200,000 or whatever his salary would be. But if he doesn't get a salary, that doesn't make him an employee, maybe. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he might not have to follow these instructions about security clearances. And again, the president has the the right to say, okay, I want want this guy here. Here, read this intelligence uh, document. Read this. What do you think about it? Now, there are nepotism rules, but again, he's not an employee. Does nepotism count? The nepotism rule, by the way, was was passed by Congress after John Kennedy made Robert Kennedy his attorney general. Right. Trump could not name Jared Kushner to be his attorney general, but could he be an informal advisor in the White House? I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's a very smart guy, and he's very rich, and he's another guy who's, you know, as they say, was born on third base and thought he hit a triple, but he seems to have made some good use of that. But what what he knows about national policy, politics, national security, uh, I don't know. As far as I know, he's read a whole lot of books about the subject and is going to really give sage advice. Uh, for some reason, I doubt that. Is there any reason to be troubled by the fact that Trump maybe wanted all his kids to have security clearances, definitely wants his son-in-law to have it, wants uh, a cadre of people who are close to him, who are relatives of him, to have such sensitive material, and those people are also out in the world making money for him, ultimately? Yeah, no, that's you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm going to hand all I'm going to hand my kids 
my company, but they're going to be cut off from everything going on in the White House. I'm not going to talk with them about it stuff at all. That has some problems in and of itself, but you can't say that and then also bring them into policymaking circles. It's a contradiction. Now, there's, other thing, there's another thing to be noted here, and Giuliani said this the other day, and people laughed at him, but he's right. Federal laws on conflict of interest do not apply to the president. Mm-hmm. So he can do this. You know, it, it is a tradition that presidential candidates reveal their income tax forms, that there's no law about that. It is tradition that presidents uh, cut themselves off from, you know, all the assets that they held while they were in private life. But there's no law about that. And we've never had a president, you know, th- those kinds of laws, they usually apply to, I have a portfolio of stocks and mutual funds. Okay, well, they're taken out of your hands, Mr. President, because we can't have you making policy and even thinking for a second about how what I'm about to do might affect the the value of my Microsoft stock, you know? Right, right. This guy owns businesses all over the world. Yeah, Uh, and he knows where the businesses are, and he knows that if he engages in a war with Uruguay or Azerbaijan where he owns businesses, that will affect... There's no blindness to that trust. I, I don't know how you do this. But, you know, there's another thing that that is in some ways even more disturbing. I mean, this indicates that this guy doesn't know anybody in this world and maybe doesn't trust anybody in this world. I mean, you know, this is why Jack Kennedy hired Bobby to be. I mean, Bobby was a lot more than just an attorney general. He was kind of a consigliere to John Kennedy in some ways for better, in some ways for worse. But it's the same kind of thing. I mean, is this – look – presidents, they form inner circles. I mean, there's a lot of talk. Oh, well, he has a very tight inner circle. All presidents do, and they kind of have to. They have to know, okay, here's a small group of people that I can really let down my hair and talk about lots of things, and it's not going to leak. I can trust them, and they can give me advice, and they're not just trying to kiss my ass like everybody else coming to this office. But if these people are just his family members, I mean, this is you know, this is this is like the mafia, where the whole family comes to aid the Godfather, except you know that they're going to send Fredo out to Vegas to learn the casino business mm-hmm. or something. Except there are no Fredos, it seems. They're all well, maybe Baron, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it's it's concerning. I mean, this is it's not because like you know one of the kids you know has a PhD in international relations from Harvard or something. No, none of them has any experience in any of this sort of thing, including the president-elect himself. I mean, that's maybe even more than than matters of conflict of interest and uh, very narrow mercantilism that might go on in this administration, is not just the narrowness of his inner circle, but their complete cluelessness when it comes to matters of state. Yeah, knowing what you don't know is a really important Yeah, I've I've written this. It turns out I wrote something of the same thing years ago about somebody else, but it's true. One of the most dangerous things is a man in power who doesn't know how much he doesn't know. Yeah. Although you did put an image of my in my mind of Barron talking to his dad, telling him, "You don't come out to Las Vegas and insult a man like (laughs) Mo Green." (laughs) I'd pay for that. (laughs) That would be good. Yeah, Yeah. I'd pay for that too, actually. Fred Kaplan (laughs) writes the War Stories column for Slate. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you. 
David Bowie has an artistic legacy that is unparalleled. Now, when we say that, we usually mean and think of his music, but I'm actually talking about the art, the artworks that he owned that were recently auctioned off in London. And Mary Lane joins us. She has covered art for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. If you want to talk European art, you talk to Mary Lane. So we do. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you for having me, Mike. Absolutely. Now, I guess the first thing we have to do is uh, decide on the ground rules. Is it going to be David Bowie, as we Americans say, or don't they say in England Bowie? Bowie. Definitely Bowie. Okay. But they do say Bowie, yes? They do, but you know, in, in typically the discussions I've had with British people, it's still been Bowie. So describe describe his collection. It was pretty impressive. It was. I mean, I have covered. So I actually first started writing about art by covering the art collection of Hubert de Givenchy, Givenchy, as Americans know him, who did all the clothing for Audrey Hepburn, and he had a collection that was like ridiculously esoteric and kind of pared down. It was like. 18th century French bronzes. And then, you know, one of the first articles I ever wrote about was Eric Clapton selling off a Gerhard Richter painting. And he's, you know, one of the more expensive artists in the world and, and definitely the most prestigious. So he's sort of like, when you say you like music, you say you like the Beatles. So, you know, I've dealt with both the kind of obvious and obscure. But I was really impressed with uh, David Bowie's collection because. In, in the cases where he does have well-known artists in his collection, he has works that aren't typically the most popular works, but he also made a lot of effort to get pieces from artists where you really have to stretch in your art history background to even know who they are. So uh, there was a one work that, that sold that was a Tintoretto, who was a, a Renaissance painter and one of the highest sought after artists. Uh, in Italy, uh, when he created this work in 1570, he had a work um, of St. Catherine, you know, being told she was going to be martyred, big downer there. The estimate was 130000 199000 but it sold for 237000 mm-hmm. And he acquired it quite a while ago. And usually it, it, the thing about collecting is it's kind of like when you redecorate a house, like that painting would be like the cool new dining table But then you think to yourself, okay, the rest of this stuff doesn't fit in. And so you might have a tendency to just chuck it out and get similar prestigious works. Uh, But he didn't he didn't do that. And I think that was the most surprising to me was that he wasn't ashamed of of liking works where you kind of have to think, wait, why did you buy that? Now, uh, the most expensive work was a Basquiat, right? That is true. It was a Basquiat. And I, I think, you know, I think Sotheby's anticipating that the Trump Clinton election would be around this time did have relatively modest estimates on there so you're Yes, I read that. I read that the entire collection was supposed to sell for or at least they had estimated that it would sell for somewhere north of 10 million dollars and the Basquiat alone actually sold for almost 9 million. That's true. Actually Basquiat's that that's that tends to be actually more of a cheap Basquiat price. Mm. It was made in 1984, which is a good year, but it's actually the color brown, which tends to not sell very well. Believe it or not, the art world is very prejudiced against color. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, David Bowie said that he really liked Basquiat because his works, even though a lot of people make fun of them, and they have a point uh, for looking like, you know, little kids scribbles. He really liked that the colors kind of looked like lava Mm -hmm. coming out of a volcano on the canvas. You know, he was someone who could afford a really good Basquiat and he was incredibly intelligent, but he chose to pick one of these colors like brown uh, that's actually a much, much trickier type of work. And I think that that 
has to do with the way he actually liked picking works that a lot of people wouldn't pick because they make you feel physically kind of weird, mm -hmm. I suppose. Uh, one of those, you know, he had a, he had a work by Frank Auerbach, um, who was a German who became British that, that sold, uh, it was estimated at, uh, 300,000 to 500,000 pounds and sold for 3.8 million. Uh, and Bowie said before his death that he really liked the work because it is, it makes you feel like crap one day when you look at it, it's just kind of like, Ooh. And then another day you'll be like, Oh, that's really cool. And that was really what he aimed for his, his music to sound like. So it, it was really interesting in that sense to kind of see how he did want works that make you kind of feel weird some days and, and wonder why you bought them. Is it overall, is it a sad thing that his art collection was scattered to the wind? Or is it a nice thing that all sorts of other people get to now own this great art and get to appreciate how good an eye for art Bowie had? That's always the eternal debate. And the major reasons for art collections being sold are death, divorce, and debt, the three Ds. At least a part of a collection is almost always sold off when somebody dies to pay for the taxes. Mm -hmm. The important thing often is just making sure that the works can be seen later. I think um, to the Tineretto that you and I talked about, which is by far the most classical work in his collection and uh, an important piece uh, in Tineretto's life, that's actually going to be uh, displayed now at the Rubens house in Antwerp, which is the home of Peter Paul Rubens, the guy who painted all the fat people. Um, Rubenesque, please. Ruben asks, yeah, but actually the uh, the St. Catherine looks quite felt, especially for someone who's about to be tied to a wheel and killed. Mary Lane writes about art for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. As a European, people refer to her as a young American. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much, Mike. And now the spiel. What do Democrats need to say? After a seismic event, be it shocking, cataclysmic, optimistic, we think things will change. In fact, without a major shift, we wouldn't use the word seismic. In politics, we talk of realigning elections. We talk of them much more than they actually happen. But the very last thing to realign whenever something big changes is people's minds, especially invested parties, how they look at the world. After 9-11, I remember the discussion of very specific question. So what does 9-11 tell us about the strategic defense initiative, the nuclear shield, you know, missile defense, Star Wars? And Hawks, who always believed in it, argued, well, this proves we need it now more than ever. We need an anti-missile system. There, there are evildoers out there, be they state-sponsored or not. They have the means and desire to cause destruction on a massive scale. The critics say this proves we don't need a missile system. I mean, this shows that asymmetric destruction can be wrought by something a lot different from an ICBM. It's like I've always said. That's what people say. And after this election, Donald Trump, could say, I've always said people are angry and want an answer. And a Trump opponent like Bernie Sanders could say, well, I've always said, in fact, here's what Bernie said. What we need to do is create a grassroots movement of millions of people who want to transform this country and make it the kind of country that we know that we can become. And later on last Sunday's Face the Nation, where that clip was from, Bernie Sanders went on to say, on virtually every major issue, raising the minimum wage, climate change, pay equity for women, rebuilding our infrastructure, making public colleges and universities tuition-free. We are the majority. That is what the American people want. 
And the Democrats will win elections by pounding away on those issues. Hey, maybe Bernie's right. And maybe Bernie could have won or should have won. But his takeaway is what all committed parties usually adopt as their takeaway. We need to do what I've always been saying we need to do. Only harder. When Time Magazine had a picture of Ronald Reagan crying on the cover a few years ago, positing the death of conservatism, they asked and quoted many conservatives, what do, what do we need to do? And the conservative said, be more conservative. Bernie is saying, be more progressive. People are open to his message now. You know, anything different from what Hillary Clinton said seems good. But red state Democrats like West Virginia's Joe Manchin says, no, no, we got to be more centrist and attuned to cultural issues. You know, like I always say we need to be. Now let's go to Jim Webb. He ran for president. He was recently on Fox News talking to Tucker Carlson. And here is Carlson quoting a Jim Webb speech to Jim Webb. You said more than 60% of immigrants from China and India to the United States have college degrees, while fewer than 20% of whites from areas such as Appalachia have college degrees. But to be white is, in the law and in so much of our misinformed debate, to be specially advantaged, privileged, as the slogan goes, while being a so-called minority is to be somehow disadvantaged. And you go on to say, why wouldn't people in Kentucky be offended by that stupid premise? White working people have become the whipping post. So Jim Webb says curb the race-based complaining. Of course, like Bernie, like the Star Wars Hawks, this isn't a new insight. It's like Jim Webb has always said. I've been talking about this since before I even ran. And let us note that Jim Webb had an opportunity to make his case to Democrats as a Democrat, and he didn't get out of the first real week of campaigning. But I want to say two things about this. Number one is, I think Jim Webb is right. Well, I wouldn't go as far as he goes, but... Let's say you're a downwardly mobile white working class guy who used to get paid $40 an hour 15 years ago, and now you get $17 an hour if you're lucky enough to have a job and you got a nephew with an Oxycontin addiction and you like your neighbor, Jim, but God forbid you call him a black guy, not an African-American, or you call him an African-American, but not a person of color. And the goddamn NFL is crazier about concussions than teaching tackling. And everyone likes Game of Thrones, but cable is $60 a month. You know what label you don't think applies to you? Privileged. And when someone starts talking about privilege or implicit bias, which by definition is nothing you could even do anything about, it's kind of off-putting to you, isn't it? And maybe you could bend over backwards, and maybe if you're really open-minded, you could grant that person, yes, you make some good points, but you don't really like that person, and you think of that person, be that person a candidate or a commentator or just a guy on Facebook, you think of them as defining you, not as someone to help, but they're defining you as the problem. White nationalists supported Trump, but so did a bunch of people who'd like nothing more than to punch a white nationalist in the nose. But those people have also been told that their whiteness, which they can't really help, is a kind of crime. Or what's the, what's the new thing? A microaggression. So yeah, I understand not getting and reaching that voter. So here's what Democrats say. That the Democratic Party has to message better. And I say, and this is the second thing I wanted to say about Jim Webb, don't bother. Because even if a candidate never says privileged or a staff doesn't say privileged, Lena Dunham's going to say it. The writers from Slate, or let's pick a publication that such a voter would actually read, the Charlton Courier-Gazette, they're going to say it. Seth Myers is going to say it. All these cultural forces are going to say it or imply it or mean it. And they should say it. If they believe it, they should argue that point. Eventually, more people will come around to their way of thinking if it's a good point. But the idea is not going away. 
The idea is associated with the left, and there's nothing specific candidates can do about it. And you know why they can't do anything about it? Because they believe it. Democrats believe it. They believe white people are privileged. So if they don't say that they're privileged, it's not really going to go anywhere. And that's the thing. You can't change your message if you don't change your beliefs. And I don't think Democrats should change when they believe it. You maybe can't win that argument, but you can't emphasize better parts of your agenda, or you can't hope the population comes to agree with ideas like privilege, or here's, a, here's an idea. Don't learn how to talk about wanting to help the working class. Actually help the working class. The auto bailout worked wonders for convincing auto workers that you would be there to bail them out. Messaging only works if it's infused with policy, and policy will only work if it really helps people, which is what I've been saying all along. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Chris Berube. Anyways, Pepper Spider Roll, very neutral, neither Trump nor Clinton. Mary Wilson, another producer of The Gist. Vintage Rondo Hustle Stores. Those are Clinton words. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Steve, Hallway Adorable Hero Corporation. Lichtai, those are some words strongly correlated, pretty strongly correlated with Trump. And for Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, I will give him the mostly neutral words, paycheck cactus fur machine. The Gist, we are despondent that the second and fourth most Clinton-correlated words were IPA and L. Not that I wasn't Clinton-correlated, but I just thought if anything made me the champion of the blue collar, it was my beer consumption. Maybe I should think of it more as my micro-beer consumption making me the champion of the blue moon collar. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.